Father, I pray once again that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I doubt if I have to convince you that we live in a messy world. It's a world that often feels upside down, out of control, unhinged. And it, we feel that in a macro sense. And sometimes, often, we feel it in a micro sense of our own lives, of things that, that come to us and the pains and the struggles that we face. And, and, we, and we wonder, in the midst of all of that, one of the questions that I think comes to our mind is, so what does it mean to live as the people of God in the middle of all this messiness? What do we do? How do we respond? How, how, do, we, how do we bear witness? How, how are we the people of God in the midst of a world that feels like it is completely opposite of what we want it to be? I don't think the Scriptures are... Um, I don't think the Scriptures are, are, are a place where we can turn to where they don't know what we're talking about. You read story after story after story of God's people living in the midst of a world that is messy and broken and uncertain. And one of the places in Scripture where we find that is this story of Esther. And over the course of, of some Sundays over this summer, we're going to be looking through the book of Esther. And there's something about the story of Esther that I think speaks to us about not only what it means to be God's people in this world, but where is God in the middle of the struggles and the messiness and the pain of this world? Esther's an interesting story. You know, it, it, it's the kind of story that, that almost feels like a Hollywood movie with all the elements of a Hollywood movie, and I mean all of the elements of a Hollywood movie, right? I mean, it, it, this is a story that, it, that is difficult for us. It is, you know, it, it's, it's a story that, that we might, some people might look at it and read it as a, you know, sort of a romantic tale. Others might read it and say this is sort of a, a story where the underdog comes through and wins, for some people, it's a, it's a story that has a, a moralistic tale to it. But as Elaine Bernias says, actually, it's not really any of those things, though there might be parts of those things in it. The story of Esther is really intended to, to show us that God and His purposes are going to be accomplished. It is a story in which we get a glimpse, a small portion of the greater purposes of God of redeeming and restoring His creation. And in the story of Esther, we get a glimpse into that. That God is at work in the messiness. That God is at work when it seems like we're not sure He's at work. The story of Esther keeps bringing us back to that. Now, you know, this is a story that that has some jagged edges to it. And quite frankly, most of us, particularly when we read the Scriptures, we would rather not read about jagged edges. 
We'd rather not read about those crevices that you can get lost in or things that make us feel uncomfortable. This story is going to weave a pathway that quite frankly at times makes us feel uncomfortable. And the question for us is in the midst of those feelings of uncomfortableness, in the midst of that messiness, can we believe, can we see, can we trust that God is still at work? It may not satisfy our desire for everything to be clean and smooth. It may not have the kind of, I don't know, moralistic kinds of principles that we often look for when we read the Scriptures. But it will show us something of who God is. And that God can work in the midst of circumstances that we might be uncertain about his, his ability to work. Of course, this, all of this that happens with, within Esther herself brings us to a, a, one of those real jagged edges, one of those crevices. You know, this, this passage we read today is, is quite long, and, and it's quite involved with a lot of details. And so I, I decided maybe we could find a way to, to condense it in order to get the story, at least in the reading of the passage. And I'll be honest with you, it was difficult to know exactly how to delicately word some of the parts of that story. Because it's, but when you read it, you, you see very clearly the reality of life. The reality of a world that has given itself to sin. The reality of the world that is broken and messy. And Esther finds herself right in the middle of that. There's a lot of discussion about Esther. And about this, this whole, you know, lack of a better term, beauty contest. In which she is drug into. And she really is. She, she does not volunteer for this. She is minding her own business. And people come around and see her and say, look, you're going to be one, you're going to be a part of this. We might look at this story from a 21st century perspective and say, well, she should have refused. Well, that's easier for us to say than it would be for her. First of all, she is, she's a, a woman as a part of a people group in exile. She is a woman in a world that is completely controlled by men. She really has no rights here. And for her to refuse might well have meant not just a lifetime of, of servitude in the worst sense of that, but it may have even meant her life. And so, however we may look at the story from this point, her decision is to say, okay. And she ends up in the middle of this story. And it's not as if God, by using what happens to her for good, is indifferent to the immorality of this story. This appalling to God. That, that, there would, that, that there would be innocent women, not just Esther, but all the other women, that would be drugged into this story. It's appalling to God. And it's a horrific thing that happens. And the story tells us that God steps into the middle of that 
just as he does when Jesus comes into this world and he brings his redemptive purposes. God does not look at our world and say, well, I'm going to do good things so it doesn't really matter how people live. Not at all. One of the purposes of God's people in this world and God's spirit in this world is to bring change to this world. That's why when we pray, the king, we, we ask your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Part of our role as God's people is to be a presence to bring change in this world. To bring righteousness and justice into a world that desperately needs that. And here is Esther in the middle of a story that she didn't ask for, but here she is. I find it interesting that the circumstances that create this scenario into which Esther is drug. When you read chapter 1, and, and it talks about this, this celebration, this party that King Xerxes throws, we find that there are some things that are a part of this that I think contribute to not only the messiness of that situation, but I think, quite frankly, the brokenness of our world. It is both a, an effect and a cause at the same time. As you look through this story, there are some things that I think ought to be on our radar as we think about what does it mean to be a witness for God to bring about change in this world. One of the reasons why all of this happens is there is this flaunting of, of the opulence of the king. We read, if you read through this passage, you find over and over again talking about how much wealth the king has. He ta it talks about all the money that's spent, all the beautiful ways in which things are decorated, all of the wealth. In fact, one translation uses the word opulence to describe what the king has. And he is flaunting it. Now, this is not to say that, that wealth in of itself is a problem. But in this case, the king is using his wealth not to help people, but to impress people. And he's simply wanting people to know, look how much I have. Look how awesome it is, all the things I have. And he's flaunting that. And in that sort of mindset, there, there is, you can see where easily those who have the wealth make all the decisions. Those who have the wealth might share it sometimes with people who don't, but it's really not to help them. It's just simply for people to say, wow, look how much they have. There's another thing that's going on in this story that I think significantly contributes to the decisions that the king makes and the things that are going on and that's alcohol. Now, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say to you that the Bible says all alcohol is wrong because it doesn't say that. But what it does talk about is drunkenness. And you get the sense that that's what's happening in here. There is one place where it says that drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs. There was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. And then it says, on the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, that's when he called Queen Vashti to come to the people. There is a connection. 
And sometimes we may not want to admit it, but there is a connection. I remember years ago hearing uh, Dr. Chamberlain, he was telling me that he was at a conference that was at the University of Buffalo, had not for Christian colleges at all, but it was administrators from all the area colleges and universities. And they had a woman there who was the dean of students at one of the state schools in Maryland. I don't remember which one. And she was talking about this problem on their campus of alcohol. And she said that they did a study and discovered that, that every incident of violent crime on their campus could be traced back to the abuse of alcohol. And, you know, when he told me that, I thought, wow, that's an amazing thing. Now, it doesn't have to be alcohol. There are lots of other things that can, that can control us. But, you, you know, in, Paul writes to the churches and says, don't be drunk on wine, be filled with the Spirit. And I think what he's really saying is, what's controlling your mind? What's controlling your decisions? Is it something that you put into your body, or is it the openness you have to the Holy Spirit? Where, what, what's, the, what's driving us? And, and we know a lot of the brokenness of our world comes back to addictions. And sometimes to be a presence in the world, we have to simply say, I'm not going to be a part of that. There's also an objectifying of other people. In this case, it's the women. The king had, decides that he wants Vashti to come. And to, to, so what's the purpose? So that everyone can see how beautiful she is. And she says, I'm not doing it. That's not what I'm about. It, it is someone mentioned to me a couple of weeks ago. It's a fascinating thing. All the money that's spent, all the time, 12 months in preparing these women for the king. That all of this takes place for the pleasure of one person. And we can objectify all kinds of things. Anything that we say in our lives that we, we want that because we think we can use it, because it will bring pleasure to us. And, and there are things that bring joy to us, and it doesn't mean we can't have things that don't bring pleasure to us. But something about it says deep in us, that will bring me the kind of pleasure that I've been looking for. We can use that. And sometimes we use each other. Sometimes we do that with God. Our prayers to God can become very self-absorbed. God, what are you doing for me? God, how are you helping me? Why aren't you taking care of these things? And God wants us to bring our burdens and our concerns to him. But in the middle of that, is there also, God, we worship you. God, we thank you. God, we glorify you. Whether you give me what I want or not, you are Lord and King, and you're more important. I think one of the great struggles that Esther has throughout this whole whole incident and this experience is that she will come to believe that her value and her worth is in how people view her instead of being a child of God. A beloved child of God created in His image. And every one of us wrestles with that. Every one of us wrestles with insecurities and we want people, sometimes what's most important to us is how people think about us and we think that's where our value and worth, our, most, our deepest value and worth is found. 
And while those things can be important and encouraging and God can use that, ultimately, we have to come to the place of knowing that our value and worth is in our Creator who loves us. I've said this before, but I love what the story Craig Barnes tells about sitting in class at, at, when he was at Princeton and having a professor say to them, you ought to wake up every morning and give thanks to God that you are unnecessary. He said, we all thought, what? what are you talking about? Unnecessary? I mean, we all know that somebody's going to replace us at some point in time with whatever we do. But surely we're necessary. Isn't that our value and worth? And the professors say to them, no, you're too important to be necessary. You deserve to be loved. The problem with value coming from being necessary is that the moment you're un- you feel unnecessary, you will feel unloved, unimportant, insignificant. God creates us to be loved. I think there's also another part of of what's going on here, and that is the sense of of the power struggle that you see taking place in, in in this whole scenario. When you when when you listen to what the advisors say to the king, after Vashti says she's not going to come, Mamukin, one of the nobles, says Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. And there will be no end to their contempt and anger. So if it please the king... We suggest you issue a written decree, a law that cannot be revoked, that Queen Vashti would be banished, and you find another king, another queen. And when this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. Now I read that, and I think to myself, what they're really saying is, we're worried that wives are going to start treating their husbands the way husbands are treating them. It's funny to me that no one stepped back and said, you know what? Maybe the solution here is that we ought to treat our wives better. Right? The solution was, let's make a law that says wives can't treat us the way we want to treat them. There is something in that about our relationships. It's not just husbands and wives. There is every relationship. Part of the sinful nature that we wrestle with is that in every relationship, there is this power struggle. I've had it with friends of mine and people where it's so subtle. You don't even realize it's happening sometimes. That's why when... That's why God, we need to remember, God created us not to rule over each other, but to be servants of each other. When God created the first human beings, he didn't create them to rule over each other. That came with the fall. He did create them to rule over all the rest of creation, but not each other. And that's why Jesus keeps saying to the disciples over and over and over again, stop arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. You never see 
a, a struggle. I, I don't think I've ever seen a struggle in, among, in a relationship of who gets to be the servant more. That's why Paul, when he writes to the church, he keeps saying, serve one another, submit to one another, give yourselves away to each other. And if we're going to have any kind of influence in the messiness and the brokenness of this world, we need to be praying every day, God, make me a servant in my home, where I work, wherever I go. Make me a servant. Help me, help me to treat other people the way I want to be treated, as Jesus says. Help me to give myself away even when I'm not treated the way I want to be treated. Help me to be like Christ. That's why Paul writes to the, the church of Philippi and talks about, says you have the mind of Christ who had all the rights in the world to grasp and grab at being God and he refused to take them. And he humbled himself and became a servant even unto death. Any other mindset is going to lead to more pain and more brokenness and more messiness. It's just going to exacerbate all of the, the flawed sinfulness that we all are wrestling with. And we need the Spirit to continue to teach us and help us and change us. This is God's design for us. We can be free from having to, to always have power. We can be free from having to grasp power. We can know the joy of letting go, of serving and loving and caring. But the ultimate part of this, of this story is where is God? Can God work through all, all this messiness? Can God work through all this brokenness? What's fascinating, as you probably are aware, this Esther is, I think, the only book in the canon that does not mention the name of God. That's one of the reasons why there was a lot of debate about whether it should be included in the canon. But it strikes me that the narrator does that intentionally. And sometimes, sometimes you do that kind of thing because otherwise every... It was just what's in front of you all the time can become so familiar you miss it. We read so much of Scripture and we, and we read God's name and we read Jesus and we can just sort of become numb to it. And sometimes I think maybe God wants us to play a little bit of hide and seek with him. And he plays that with us, not to, conf not to confuse us and not to frustrate us, but to get us in this position and this mode of seeking him, looking for him, wanting him, desiring him. Because he can become just sort of commonplace to us. God's always there. We, we always see him. We always think about him. But do we? Do we really believe that? Sometimes one of the best things we can do is to step back and say, God, help me to seek you. Help me to look for you. Help me to have a passion for you and a yearning for you. That's why the psalmist, I think, writes at various times, seek the Lord 
But Jesus says, ask and seek and knock. Why does he need to say that? Because often we don't. And we need to. How do we see God in the midst of the brokenness? We have to look for him. And this is, the whole story of Esther is a story where you have to look for God. You have to seek God in that story. And sometimes that's the very best thing that can happen to us because the tension of God, of looking for God, creates faith. And the writer, Paul writes to the Romans and says, it's only by faith that you you can know righteousness in life. And the writer of Hebrews says the same thing. Without faith, you can't please God. There is this sense of faith is so instrumental. And faith leads to trust. And deeply embedded in trust is love. And ultimately, love is about relationship. And that's what God is seeking for us. Not that we have, not that we have some moral principles we follow. He wants relationship with us. And more often than not, the relationship is developed as we seek him and desire him and have faith in him. And maybe one of the great gifts God gives us is that sometimes he's not as visible as we want him to be because it forces us to have faith. It forces us to seek him. It forces us to look at our lives and say, do I really have that passion for God to be a presence for God in the midst of all of this messiness? Do I believe that God is at work in the, in the brokenness and the messiness of this world? Can I see him? Do I believe it? Can I trust him? I have a friend who was telling me not too long ago that when he was young, he loved oil lamps. All kinds of oil lamps. He loved you know, sort of the uh, antique kind of oil lamps. He said he loved the smell of them, he loved the look of them. Just, just, just something about them just drew him to them. And his grandmother had a, an oil lamp that he was particularly fond of, and he always wanted it. For some reason, when the time after she had died, when the time came for the family to divide up what she had, he didn't get that lamp. He was disappointed about it, but you know, that's the way things go sometimes. One year for his birthday, I think he was probably a teenager or late teens, his parents had given him a few gifts, and they said, well, happy birthday. And he said, they said it in a way as if there was something else, and he looked at them like, what? What else is there? Is there something else? They said, don't you see it? He said, see what? And they just said, well, just look around. And he looked, and he looked, and all of a sudden, his eye caught the mantle over the fireplace, and on that mantle was that oil lamp that he'd always wanted as a child. And he jumped and says, you got it. And he said, what he, as he's reflected on that, the thing that struck him is that the fact that it was hiding in plain sight, and they had to look for it, made the, made the discovery of it that much more meaningful. And maybe God is calling you and me to just look for him a little bit more. Maybe God is challenging us in the midst of this world of brokenness to trust him when we see him and when we don't. 
and to believe that no matter what we see or don't see, can we trust that God is always at work? That God is always faithful. That God is always good. And God doesn't have to always get rid of all the things that make us uncomfortable to do the work that he wants to do in this world, in us, and through us. That's one thing I love about coming to this table. When, when God, when Christ institutes this table with his disciples, it seems like such a small thing. And yet the profoundness of eating and drinking reminds us that in the midst of a world of brokenness, God is at work. And he's calling us to join him and to enter in and to believe that he is at work. If we look, we will find Will we trust him? Father, we thank you that you are at work and that we can trust you. We pray today, Father, that your grace and your blessing would rest upon this bread and the cup of which we are about to partake. Father, we pray that it would be food for our souls through the grace of Christ Jesus. Amen.